watchers in the fourth dimension. We've got to go on resisting. We must. But you can't fight metal with flesh and blood. I don't think it will do any good. Not in 2150 AD. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And this episode, we will be discussing the second Dalek film, Dalek's Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. Preparations to make this film started before the first film had even wrapped, when co-producer Milton Sabotsky asked both Peter Cushing and Roberta Tovey, aka Susan Hu, to reprise their roles for a second outing. As with the first film, Sabotsky wrote the script, adapting Terry Nation's original with some additional work being done by former TV story editor David Whittaker. Very brief consideration was initially given to adapting The Keys of Marinus before it was decided that Daleks were a far more marketable proposition. Sabotsky and Whittaker condensed the script down from six 25-minute episodes, 150 minutes in length, to an 84-minute runtime. This meant certain characters had their parts diminished and some elements of the TV story, such as the Slither, were removed entirely. Neither Roy Castle nor Jenny Linden, aka Ian and Barbara, opted to return. Rather than recasting their characters, Sabotsky decided to create two new characters. Louise, who's noted in the film as Doctor Who's niece, and Tom Campbell, a 1960s policeman who travels with the crew by accident after mistaking TARDIS for a real police box. Louise is played by Jill Curzon, who also had roles in Out of This World, The Saint, and Adam Adamant Lives, so the standard circuit, while Tom would be played by legendary Bernard Cribbins, who also had roles in shows and movies as varied as the Carry On franchise, The Avengers, Space 1999, Faulty Towers, and his very own sitcom, Cribbins. He will, of course, appear in the TV version of Doctor Who alongside David Tennant in Series 4 of the revival of the show as Wilfred Mott. He was also a regular on the Christmas pantomime scene, and I have very, very fond memories of seeing him on stage in southwest London during the 1990s. The film was the biggest production that the Amicus, uh, I mean the Aru team, had ever been involved in, and Subotsky and Rosenberg had never had such a big budget to play with which had been increased in part by sponsorship agreements, Waiter Oats put forward funding in exchange for what was effectively product placement, so we see things like sugar puff billboards throughout the film. So were, were Quater Oats something that was available to promote the Quatermass experiment? Obviously. <laughs> I was half asleep when I wrote this. Quaker Oats, that should have been. And other economies were found by sharing Dalek props with a West End stage production called The Curse of the Daleks, and they also used slightly less experienced Dalek operators. Gordon Fleming was brought back as director, but the film was beset by many production problems, including production being significantly delayed when Peter Cushing fell ill. There were also many accidents on set, including stuntmen getting injured during shots, and some of those incidents actually made it into the final film. Subotsky said that the film itself was really made on the cutting room floor rather than during production itself. The only member of the production team that really changed was the composer. So for this film, they brought in Glaswegian Bill McGuffey, and I have a feeling that the team is going to have a few things to say about him. <laughs> Outside of this, he did the majority of his work for TV, working on shows such as Dixon of Doc Green, Harry Worth, and Monty Python's Flying Circus. Let's talk about the film. As already mentioned, there were some changes to the cast and the characters. What did we think of Louise and Tom? They were okay, but the opening titles were spectacular. <laughs> Let's talk about that first, in that case. Yes. Because during them, the, the music actually set kind of a nice, if jazzy, sci-fi tone. 
And it worked really well with that, like, Eddie swirl thing that they had going on. I was like, all right, I I can get into this. This is going to be a fun 60s sci-fi fun little thing. It's going to be great. Yeah, I I thought the kind of swirl almost looked like um, they were trying to emulate the TV title sequence, just using water in a plug hole in a sink instead. That could be. Could be. That could very well be. They were doing it on the cheap. And then... You get into the actual movie and the music deteriorates into chaos. <laughs> <laughs> so before we touch on anything else, yes. let's talk about the music, since it's the first thing we really experience <laughs> along with the, the opening sequence. Jazz noises. Go to town, guys. Jazz noises everywhere. It's pretty clear that the composer wanted the music to be its own character, but I don't think that... The music should be a character that literally crashes onto the stage, rips things up, pushes other characters out of the way, and then runs at the camera and like puts its face in it. It was a character that showed up to the wrong film and just charged on anyway. Yep. Yeah. I, I imagined him thinking, thinking like, this is going to be my big break. Everyone's going to really know my name. I'm really going to put it out there for this one. That's felt like a, a bit of trying way too hard. Again, like take the music out of the scenes and it's good, fun music. It's well-made music, but it absolutely does not fit what is happening on screen. Outside of the comedic beats of the uh, movie, it, it the music seemed to do okay with that one scene with Bernard Cribbins, like doing the Roboman kind of thing that, you know, was playful and cute for that little slapsticky moment. And it worked there, I thought, fine. But it was at moments of like drama or tenseness that it couldn't develop suspense at all and i think that's where it really feels at those times i think like if they were if they did this on the editing room floor scrapping this all together i would have just felt there was more tension if you had no music at all than the music they ended up using were the random jazz interludes more or less unnecessary than in the chase i honestly thought there were less jazz interludes but there was also random percussion heavy sequences that were ill-timed and some other items so not sure okay fair enough i prefer the chase music uh and how it was used over this once you've hit a certain level of inappropriateness i mean you know (laughs) yep the chase itself was so eclectic and how it bounced around it kind of was fine for something to maybe not match all the time but this the story here the narrative here is pretty consistent all the way through other than one comedic scene but that still isn't too out of place so, Louise, was she an upgrade on the Barbara of the first movie? She had more lines. <laughs> I think she might have done a couple things. Yeah. Ish. She's an upgrade, but like upgrade to like a point one version, not a full version. <laughs> Just, you know, mm. a little bit more. And how does she compare to the, the OG Barbara? Oh, oh no. Oh, that's a silly <laughs> oh, no. question and you know it. <laughs> She, she didn't they didn't give her the opportunity to run over daleks so obviously uh, i mean this is oh. 1966 women can't drive cars and especially not truck i would have accepted it if they'd let Susie drive over the daleks <laughs> mm-hmm. that would have been that would have been awesome that would have been phenomenal yeah I could have forgiven it if it had been Susan, but no, they gave it to a man. So no, sorry. Which, to be fair, is not necessarily her fault, but I will fault, I guess, the writers for giving it to the man instead, because they were the ones who changed the scripts. I'm curious, Julie, you you hit on a point here. I I think 
the role of women in this film has been somewhat diminished from its original TV counterpart. There's no Barbara being badass with her destruction derby. Susie is, I, I actually think, a bit more competent than Susan. But beyond that, well, yeah. there are very, very few women in the script doing much. Yeah, because they took out the one, I forget her name from the show. The almost the female that... companion? Yes. Yeah, yeah, she was gone entirely. She was completely gone. I mean, to a certain degree, I'm glad that Susie is a girl, a younger girl, as opposed to the other age, because then they, if they had done the whole, oh, we'll leave you with the guy and, you know, see you on your way, it would have added to the treatment of women, I guess we should say. So glad that just for the fact that she's a little girl made that not happen. And then even the two crazy ladies who turned them over to the Daleks, like, I don't think they were as good as they were in the show. They were still hags, Either. but they just weren't trying. <laughs> yeah. The casting department do get some points from me for the hags, because the older one is played <laughs> by Elaine Way, the original old hag from the TV show. There will be no fire. So props to the casting department. Okay. Riley, do you do you disagree with my description of them as being hags? <laughs> no, I think that's fine. They're I mean, basically, they're witches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're 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 surrounded in a large like a, a pot, but a, you could call it a cauldron. I mean, it's it's just very clear that an illusion that they're trying to draw there. I was thinking that it's just very clear that probably what happened, and you're talking about the treatment of female characters from the show for the film, is like you know with the film. Everything costs money. Every single, you know, strip of film, every single little cell costs money. And so when they were looking at trimming this whole thing down, a longer story to just 84 minutes, typically a short film is 90 minutes. If you go less than that, then people are kind of, you know, looking at you like, okay, what went wrong? Or you're just being really cheap. Yeah, but it just seems pretty clear. One doll like tracking shot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Which gets repeated. Exactly. It's just, it's pretty clear that the producers like looking over the story, they're like, first things when in a cut, all the female led scenes. Let's go. Cut, 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 cut. That's probably what they did. Speaking of budget, I think they did a really good job with their sets because the set we see at the beginning where I forgot his name, but Bernard has to, he attempts to stop the crime. That's the same Mm -hmm. set that we see later on in the blown out streets and it gets redressed several times throughout the film. I mean, they didn't have much of a budget, but what they had, they they made work. They did very well with that. I think that, you know, the set, the the shooting locations, you know, the scouting and the scouting of the locations, I think they did well with that. And that was okay. I think the other thing, too, is by that point in the show, I already knew that Barbara was such a strong character um, that I think they gave her a lot more to work with. And given that I, I don't know a lot of these actors or actresses outside of Peter Cushing, and obviously I know Bernard Cruden's because, you know, later Doctor Who. So it could just be the nature of, well, we just decided not to even get a big big name cast and so if we don't have a big name cast and we don't have to give them anything to do mm. is another p- a piece of it so and also i mean it also you know kind of you know boils down to like you know what are we here for it's it's the daleks right that's that's that was the pull so less less Can, less lines of characters less talky talky more daleks tra- tracking shots and i don't know that it fits in this particular conversation but i just want to make sure that it gets noted that they continue to try to fix Susan's sprained ankle with <laughs> water <laughs> and a washcloth. Cold compress. <laughs> cold compress. And not even a cold compress, just 
basically a compress. So sorry, I just wanted to make sure that that was well known to everybody. Julie, you mentioned Bernard Cribbin, so let's talk about Tom. I really enjoyed Tom. I thought he was a vast improvement over Ian in the last one, but that was primarily because they made Ian such a comedic character. Comedy Ian, not real Comedy Ian. Ian. But Tom was... I mean, he had some comedic moments, but he wasn't like the the fool. He's more fully rounded as a character. If I remember correctly, our first introduction to Ian in Doctor Who and the Daleks is he literally doesn't he like fall into the the house, like falls over coming into the house. I feel yes. like that made because I kept because I kept imagining him like, oh my god, this guy is doing Dick Van Dyke but poorly. And uh, with with Tom though. <laughs> With Tom, like you see him in the beginning, he actually has like you you know everything you need to know about him. He is a good, honest, hardworking police officer. And he seems competent in his job. And the only times where we're laughing at him is not because we think he's stupid. He's just an average person trying to make sense of amazing situations that he finds himself in. So that's a lot more a lot more endearing. I completely agree. I think the comedy beats are spot on. The the moment in the Dalek spaceship where he's among the Roboman. That's a wonderful bit of comedy, but there's still some tension there. You know, he could get found and killed. It's not just comedy for the sake of comedy. They they actually do something with it to make it fit into the story rather than having him fall through the living room door and sit on a box of chocolates just to establish him as a bit of a bumbling fool. I agree with you on that. At the same time, that was the one scene I felt I would probably cut because tonally it just... <laughs> It, it rubbed me the wrong way. It just went on a little too long, and it was a little too, hey, look at this little bit we got here. That's just Fair me, enough. Though. I don't think there's any comedic bit in the movie that's even like a quarter of uh, the length of as that bit is. Yeah. So it just seems really just, you know, stuck in there. Yeah. But we also mm-hmm. get Peter Cushing in a fetish outfit, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I was going to go next, was onto the costumes. I can so. tell. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine William Hartnell in that costume? Uh, I apologize for potentially causing nightmares for (laughs) days to come. Yeah, why did you have to do that? Sorry. You threw us all off course right now. All right. (laughs) (sighs) I'd never really liked the Roboman. I like the idea of the Roboman. In neither version do I really like the outfit. It doesn't work. They work a little better here, even if it does kind of look like something you might see at Frolicon, but... It's, it's like comfortable finish, you know, it's not too tight, it's just... <laughs> it does I, have a little I bit think... of a Devo about it, though. Yeah, that too. I, I think the helmets work better, but the rest of the outfit is a bit much. Because the helmets, what I recall from the original, were awful. And that's all they really had in the original. They, you know, they, they, they were helmets mm-hmm. and then their whatever clothes they were captured in. And they were big and they were clunky, whereas here they're, they're kind of sleek. They're, they're sleek-looking helmets with nice built-in shades. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what's, what, what more could you want? Well, because of all that sun you get in England, you need those shades. Hey, now. Hey, hey, now. <laughs> Shots fired. Shots have been fired. <laughs> Is there anyone else that we want to talk about from the perspective of kind of like, I guess, recast? Any of the side characters. I want to talk about Philip Maddock. You want to talk about Welsh teeth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not going to say anything about Welsh teeth. (laughs) Haha, you just did. I tricked you. Ah, you got me. He does have very Welsh looking teeth, though. And I'm going to leave it at that. 
<laughs> okay. Having him there as as the the kind of shady smuggler slash general bastard. <laughs> I thought he was fantastic. He's totally humorless. He's in a trench coat. There's a point where someone asks him, "Do you want to be a part of this?" and he just says no and walks off. I I, I thought he was magnificent. And then the moment when he actually smiles, that legitimately sends a chill down my spine. Because you know there's just something menacing behind that. That's the only other character I wanted to talk about. He does definitely fit. I guess that must have been like a film t- uh, trope or a stereotypical character. Because whenever I think of him and like the black turtleneck and like just how he behaves, I think of, what's that character from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, Arnold Tote, the Ronald Lacey uh, playing the Gestapo agent with oh, yeah. the who burns his hand. Yeah, all I could think of like an ancient Hollywood, ancient Hollywood, old Hollywood is like kind of a Peter Lorre kind of creepiness. But I, mm-hmm. I you're right. That's an enjoyable character to put in films, especially when you know it does you know fit the allegory here of you know the, the Daleks you know invading and holding down London. So it also fits because there's certain aspects of it that is comedic because it's so ridiculous that he's just he is a bit over the top but he's also actually creepy at the same time so it balances out really well and of course we'll see uh more of philip maddock in the actual show as we uh, get further along he he becomes quite an icon at times in general how does this work as an adaptation did you guys think it would it did the original story justice do you think it was better worse just different let's let's talk through that a little bit uh, I mean, like I said, they streamlined it, putting it like 84 minutes, and I feel like they get a little bit more depth with the characters, a little maybe set up more conflict, and maybe just give a little bit more tension. It just feels like everything happens so fast, and you're running through it before you even have a chance to really soak in what you know what is going on. So, um, and maybe the issue was they just didn't have enough, like <laughs> you know, like you said, if it's you know, picked up from the editing room floor. I mean, they just didn't have enough good stuff, good footage to fill it out. But I, I think it it suffers greatly as a story uh, in the in the film compared to the uh, to the television serial. I just want to say this was edited by Anne Chegwidden. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Cornish name. So shout out to friend of the podcast Adam Spring. That's our obligatory Cornwall mention. But yes, that is a wonderful name. It really is, and. I'm I'm not sure if it's, I mean, it's different. It's condensed. There are some things I would have liked to have seen. A, a movie version, maybe an enhanced version of the Slither. The plot is still, what's the word? Kind of dumb. Once you know what the Daleks' <laughs> plan is, and the music doesn't really help sell any tension. Yeah. But it's fine. The original is um, still one of, when we do our ratings, uh, still one of the highest rated story, if not the highest rated story we've done to date, once you average out our scores. So we thought really highly of this on TV. It's unfortunate some of the things that they took out. There were the bombs that the Daleks placed all around town. That was you know kind of important, especially with Susan being injured and then going in and out of the sewers, the alligators. Yeah, which we lost a lot of the tension there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten about the alligators. <laughs> Actually, speaking <laughs> of bombs, there is one scene where one of the rebels is quote unquote throwing a bomb at a Dalek, but they didn't give him a prop. 
So he literally has his empty hand pulled back. <laughs> it's like, you know, throwing something for a dog. There's just nothing there. <laughs> so one of my questions was, w- would have been, was this directed better than the original? But that honestly does sound like a Richard Martin level error. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I couldn't, I couldn't resist the final dig at Richard Martin. <laughs> so as I was saying, because, you know, everyone interrupts me <laughs> sorry thanks everybody uh so and while i agree with you don that in in the end the what the dogs are trying to do is really dumb i think the you can't exactly change that because that's really the core piece of what the story is all about <laughs> are you making a pun so... on the core piece because if you're not you should be <laughs> and you should own it i'm sorry i'm not that good on the fly all right <laughs> <laughs> so be disappointed um so but yeah i just think that it was rushed i do like some of the streamlining because you know when there's multiple episodes and things of that nature there's usually some padding but they took out too much and everything just rushed too fast i agree i do agree with that the original is a slow burn designed to be watched over six weeks and it works really well watching it as an episode at a time whereas this one as you guys have said it's 84 minutes it's fast paced and it loses something in that i think one of the things that to me it really lost was during the beginning of the tv serial you have that please don't throw bodies in the river and the closest we get in this one is a sugar puffs ad at the same location (laughs) It couldn't even say, please don't throw sugar puffs in the river, which I think would have been at least a funny (laughs) nod. But no, in the midst of this post-apocalyptic looking hellscape, we get an ad for a kid's series. Don't put the the corpses in the river, Tim's. (laughs) Also, actually, yeah, um, Anthony, after you went with that that intro, I was like, oh, it makes so much more sense now why there was so much product placement. Yeah, they paid for it. I know. When they went into that one, the the factory with all the toys, well, that was a legit toy factory, and you could see their logo on the boxes. (laughs) So one thing I wanted to touch on here was the direction. I mean, I I think anyone who's listened to us before knows how critical I was and have been of the original director, Richard Martin, from the TV show. Do they do a better job here, in the opinion of of the group? No. No, Uh, no. Not really. No. They did a good job of blowing up Daleks in various ways, but... (laughs) There are moments that I think work better from a direction point of view than their TV counterpart, and I'm particularly thinking the attack on the spaceship, Mm -hmm. but for the Mm -hmm. most part, I think Richard Martin's actual strengths, and I do believe he has some strengths, were on the location shooting. He was a very good location director, and not so good as a studio director. Much of the original was shot on location where he actually shines. This, the parts that I think are directed better, are those ones that were originally recorded in the studio for the TV story, such as the attack on the spaceship. I remember commenting in the original with all the shoots in London. I mean, also commenting on the fact that how in the world are Daleks getting around when they can't go upstairs? But those were great shots, especially because, again, you got to see the the level of impact that they had because they're traveling through London and going through all the streets of London. Whereas here, everything was condensed to pretty much mostly set shootings, including the awesome map paintings that we had. By the mines. <laughs> That's true. I actually kind of liked some of those. They worked really well when people weren't in front of them moving. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I did notice in, in the London one, they did have the post office tower painted up there. So ties nicely in with the war machines. That's true. So speaking of the Dalek ship, did they hire a new interior designer between the last movie and this one? <laughs> I guess they did. I mean, times change. I don't know. They were just lacking that, that funky Dalek sense of design from the first one. Oh, you mean no dicks and no lava lamps? I do mean no dicks, no lava lamps. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, that's actually an interesting point. And to be serious for a second here. So the last story in the last film was set on a distant planet and yet had a lot of 60s feel to it. I wouldn't necessarily say dicks in general, but there was, you know, that that weird hallway (laughs) scene where there's just a lot of, you know, interesting things to see there. Please refer to our previous podcast. And then they had like all the lava lamps and it was just had a very 60s vibe. And then in this one, it's on Earth, but it is set in a different era and it's still the Dalek. So you would think that some of that design would be the same, but oh no, it took a very drastic turn. So obviously the Daleks have decided that, nope, we're not going to be cool and hip anymore. We really lost that Daleks after dark feel. And I admit (laughs) I miss it. (laughs) Speaking of uh, Dalek design, they do guess away from their fun color scheme they had in the original movie as well. Yeah, the variation isn't there as much. I mean, there is a little bit. I agree. I prefer the Dalek style, the Dalek look so much more in the in Doctor Who and the Daleks film than Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD, not to be confused with BC. Though a tw- Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 BC would be quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we could get Eileen way back again uh. to play the old woman. <laughs> there will be no fire. Yeah, I think with the first movie, just those bright colors, they really pop and it feels very 60s. And I, I think this movie comes across as a bit more drab in its color scheme. It's yeah. just not quite as fun. Which is strange because the opening credits set you up to think like, oh, here we go again. All right, let's go. Let me let me get my go-go boots on. We're ready to go. But then it's just like, okay, no. It also doesn't help that we recently watched The War Machines, which had very much more of a hip feel to it. It really did. That's true. I felt wonderfully 60s. I mean, with that club scene, absolutely. Well, Inferno? Yes. Mm -hmm. This is set in the future, ostensibly, but yeah, (laughs) nothing looks like it takes place in the future. Let's take us back to the costumes for a second. So I know we already talked about the Robo-Men, but in general, the costumes of the surviving humans... Not so good. It's basically every single occupation, continental Europe by you know occupation by the Nazis movie ever. Everyone's got a little bandana tied around their throat. <laughs> it's just yeah. you can cut in bits yeah. of a uh, top secret. You've ever seen that movie? <laughs> yeah, Kilmer. Yes. Yeah, that would be good. There's obviously a very deliberate blitz feel about the London scenes. To- any of you think there's a very deliberate kind of parallel to, to war movies? Well, I mean, yeah. that's that's the whole thing. I mean, we know what the Daleks represent. Yep. And this is just kind of carrying on through to the idea of like, what if the Germans did win Battle of London? What's interesting there is in the original TV version, we have the those scenes of the Daleks parading around London, plunges extended as if giving the Nazi salute. And we, we lose that here. That very obvious Nazi imagery. Yeah. It's disappointing. It is, because, I mean, that's all a part of what makes the Daleks the Daleks. This whole that's, discussion that's the... is making me like this yeah. less and less. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I feel like there was just a lost opportunity there. I would agree. I think there was an opportunity for something that was 
a bit more grounded, a bit more emotional impact. And this has a lot of weird tonal shifts. It's not quite a war movie. It's not really a comedy, but there are some weird comedy bits to it. You lose a lot of the darkness that was in the television show. Like you said, with the Daleks moving around London, with no bodies in the river. And even the reveal of the Dalek this time is really not done as well. It just kind of happens. Like, oh, there it is. And it's very fast. Yeah. Yeah. They want to use a lot of color. They want to make it all splat, big splash, all cool, big movie. Here we go. And yet the story that they're using is like you're saying, it's a downer of a story. It isn't like, hey, we just we're, you know, we're on the Tartars crew. We just happen to show up on this planet and there's these creatures and these creatures called Daleks and da 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 and sex pants, all a good time. And now it's like we're on Earth and it's just like, well, this is like taken to heart. I mean, this movie, what, 1966? Yes. So like we're trying to take something that's weird and zany and colorful and fun. Yet the story is basically telling everyone, hey, remember what happened here 20, 23 years ago? It doesn't really work. That's a point I'm going to come back to in a bit. Before we quite get there, I, I do want to ask, do you think this actually benefited from the significantly larger budget than its TV counterpart? Or do you think that budget was kind of wasted? There were a few things that I think were a little bit better. I really actually did like the design of the Dalek spaceship outside of the not being as cool and funky, but like the outside of it did benefit some because I remember that in the show it was not so good. Um, So I think there's very, very specific things that benefited, but there are some things that were wasted. So I think it was a bit of both. Yeah. Don, any thoughts on that? I agree with what everyone said. Movies are expensive to make. So even if you have a higher budget, you're not always necessarily going to get more out of it. I think they did a a good job with what they had. Like I said, I like the way they use the sets. I I just think there was more of an opportunity to, to tell this kind of story, which is about overcoming those invaders and surviving and just the, the whole the tone of it just doesn't quite match up with that that story, even ignoring the fact that they're just trying to hollow out the planet to drive it away. Speaking of which, one of the characters does describe the Dalek clan as being insane within the yes. movie, which I thought was wonderful. Riley, you started heading in this direction, and I wanted to really talk about why did this fail. I mean, there are some theories on some of the things going on in society at the time. Uh, And then there's the possibility that it just wasn't very good. So this came out around a week after England had won the World Cup. So huge time of national pride. And you're giving them a movie which sees a bombed out London with the British being oppressed by your Nazi replacement. And who did England beat in the World Cup final that year? Germany. Uh, that would have been Germany, yes. <laughs> Dalek mania had started to wane. So where the, the previous year when the first movie happened, the Daleks were still very much a cultural tour de force here. It it wasn't the case. And Doctor Who was becoming less popular on TV. Uh, the ratings had been declining steadily through the third season. It was being aired against Batman, the Adam West Batman on ITV. That's hard to uh, beat. That's hard and to then beat. This was the same summer <laughs> that the Batman movie came out. So <gasps> with the shark repellent yeah. spray. Shark? Was, yeah. Yes, the shark repellent. It was campy and in color. <sighs> and it and it suited a campy story yes. and a campy way of telling a story. 
So what what do you guys think? Was this a cultural thing with other elements detracting from it? Or was it just that this was badly made, the tone was all wrong, and it just wasn't very good? How would you weigh those against each other? I think those are contributing factors. I mean, the thing to remember is essentially it's a kid's movie. So I can I can talk all I want about how, oh, there's potential for a darker story here, which there is. But really, they were aiming this at kids that were really caught up in Dalek mania. So that was probably never going to happen. But did it feel like a kid's movie? Um, no, but it's it's not significantly worse than the first one. Yeah. They want to make a movie for kids about Daleks and using original Doctor Who stories. They should use the chase. It's more suited to children. It's a harder sh- you know, to shoot, and it's hard to fit all that in because there's so much going that on. But insane, you could edit it down. So. Well, yeah, well, that's what, ki- that's what kids yeah, would which like. Which is why I'm sad Bond, because I think that would have been the next Dalek story, and that would have been great. Yeah, I agree. I do agree with that. As a, as a group, are we thinking not good, or are we thinking culture, or are we thinking both? It's both. Yeah. both. It's absolutely both. All right, which does bring me on to my next question. Would you rather have had The Keys of Marinus as an adaptation or this? This. Really? I would say Keys of Marinus if they leave out the the really creepy guy who is probably going to rape somebody. Yes, leave out if the rape enthusiast. Yeah. Take him out and then, okay, Keys of Marinus, I could understand. But if they leave him in, absolutely not. Fair enough. They've had the same budget. Yeah, obviously. Then stick with this, because I don't think they could have pulled off that bigger world of Keys of Marinus. Fair. Oh, the alien... Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And then the, the other option, of course, that had aired by this time would have been the Daleks' master plan. Ooh. God. Imagine, uh, we we thought this movie? had too much taken out of it. Imagine that cut down to 84 minutes. Let's take a chainsaw to it. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe not. With that, let's vote on this as usual everyone can choose their measurements of choice it's out of 10 we will start this time around i actually get the first vote i enjoyed this i enjoy watching it 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 reminds me a lot of my childhood when i was growing up this was a, a movie that actually got repeated on british tv maybe once or twice a year both of the dalek movies in the early to mid 90s so I remember Sunday afternoons in, in the winter, sitting by the fire with a Dalek movie on TV. It was great. So there's, there's a nostalgia factor here. But watching this again as an adult with a critical eye, having been doing this as a marathon and having recently watched the original and drawing direct comparisons, it, it just doesn't work as well. And again, putting that critical adult eye on it, it the, the tone is all over the place. The direction is lacking in spots, the the absurdly long Dalek tracking shot being one of them. So for me, I am going to give this six and a half Welshmen in trench coats <laughs> out of ten. Don, you're up next. I'm trying not to compare this to the original TV story. Because I, I think it was done better in that respect, but I, I tr- always try to imagine what their intent was. And it was really to continue cashing in on Dalek Mania. I don't think it's bad. It's kind of fun. There's a lot of inappropriate music cues. I didn't like some of the designs as much, but I liked what they did with the budget that they had. It's not bad. It's not the best thing you'll ever watch, but it was fun to sit down with with three friends and make fun of it. And that's sometimes all you really want. So I'm going to give it 
seven Peter Cushings in fetish outfits out of ten. Hey, <laughs> Julie. So I tend to agree with a lot that's been said. I think there were some issues. Obviously, I will I will focus a little bit on uh, use of the female characters. A lot of the stuff that was really great that Barbara had, they just gave to a man. So I will ding uh, some on that. And again, the really misplaced music and all of that. But at the same time, it was fun. It wasn't too long. And I tend to disagree with things that are too long as opposed to too short. And there's, there's still some good qualities. And, you know, Tom was excellent. So I will give it six and a half cold compresses <laughs> out of ten. Do you want to go with cold compresses or room temperature cold <laughs> compresses? <Okay>. Room temperature. <laughs> yes. Miracle cure. Take care of everything. Broken bones, coronavirus, whatever you got. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly if it's uh, dirty Thames water. <laughs> yeah. That's the secret. Yeah, Riley. I feel like, you know, we've pointed out a lot of the, you know, problems with the film and, but, you know, I was just thinking about what you were saying, Anthony, about like, uh, if you look at it from a nostalgic factor, if you like Doctor Who, if you, you know, it's always good to have more content and it isn't something that, it's not something you'll, you're sit there and you're like, oh my God, I'm so bored. There's always something to keep, keep you going, be it good or bad, it will definitely keep your attention. Uh, so yeah, it's, it has and to talk about other good things. It's like, Hey, it's always fun to have a Dr. Who story in color at this time period. I love Peter Cushing. I'll watch him in anything. And you know, it, it's, it's fun. It's zany. It doesn't really work, but it's, it's just generally just fun and, and mindless movie entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it doesn't have to be, you know, necessarily like, very sharp so i will give it but you know like we said there are some problems so uh i will give it uh six and a half a bernard cribbins's i don't know what the plural for him would be because cribbins eye cribbins yeah cribbins eyes cribbins eye crib eye crib eye i'll take i'll take six and a half bin crib eye steaks out of ten i've made a huge mistake i should have voted in chegwiggins instead <laughs> uh, I I wish I could say you'd get another opportunity done, but I I don't think you will. Uh, such is life. <laughs> what 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 is the currency exchange on on Cribbies versus Chegwigans? <laughs> uh, right now it's uh it's it's two Cribbies to the Chegwin. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, so that gives us a story average of six point six three. We all voted this one slightly lower than the first movie, with the exception of Don. You voted just exactly the same. The story average on the first one was seven. We all gave it seven across the board. And this was significantly lower than its TV counterpart, where we gave collectively an 8.5 and uh, all voted significantly higher. A little disappointing, but that's life. Before we wrap up, any last thoughts? No. I, oh, one my one last thought is the fact that um, Bernard Cribbins sounded so much like Wolf that if I just closed my eyes, I could just picture him with his little reindeer ears. <laughs> Maybe he had a, a nervous breakdown after this and changed his name and actually became Wolf. 
So that brings us to the end of our discussion on Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD and to the end of Doctor Who on the big screen, or at least for now. One item we like to do here, if we have any, is the mail. And we did have an email from a gentleman by the name of Keith Burton. For those of you who follow us on Instagram, he is Doctor Who on Target on Instagram. And he actually, rather than communicating via that platform, dropped us a note to say how much he enjoys the podcast. And it's great to hear the fresh opinions of people new to the show mixed with expert commentary from a longtime fan. So thank you, Keith. And it's been a pleasure. We've, we've built a little partnership up on, on Instagram. He will post something related to the episode we've just published, and we will cross-post that. Uh, and and it's, it's turned into quite a nice little partnership. So, Keith, thank you for your support. And, of course, we have some back and forth going on on Facebook, and we like to talk to all of you if you uh, comment on our Facebook posts as well. We, we do respond. We'll be back next time when we're off to Cornwall for a story of pirates as we get started on Season 4 with The Smugglers. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. And as a reminder, you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. And as you've just heard, we do like to read out emails. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, No Dicks, No Lava Lamps, was recorded on Thursday the 12th of March 2020. And always remember, when making a movie, try to align to the cultural zeitgeist, not against it.